a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Welcome to a new episode of Force Ghost Coast to Coast Multiversity Comics Star Wars Podcast. And it's the first episode of 2018. So, Happy New Year, everyone. We haven't really talked since, I think, just before December in the lead-up to The Last Jedi. And, unfortunately, we couldn't get an episode together in time for The Last Jedi because, well, it was the holidays, but that's what we're going to be talking about here. Looking back at the end of 2017 and you know, the reaction to The Last Jedi, and joining me to talk about that is, as always at this point, Brian Salvatore. How are you doing, man? Good. I've got my uh, my son, Ben, uh, not named for Kenobi or Solo, but we can pretend he is, uh, sitting next to me on the couch having some yogurt. So we're just having lunch, and uh, yeah, we're, we're looking for, I'm looking forward to talking about this movie, since I've I have now seen it four times. How many times have you seen it? I have also seen it four times, actually. Okay. All right. Which is, uh, I, I, so my tally was I saw it midnight in IMAX uh, with the double bill with The Force Awakens. I saw it, which was like midnight going into Thursday. I saw it the Saturday um, for the day before my birthday in IMAX as well. I saw it the Monday in what was called Super Screen, which was just, I think, a 4K projection. And then I saw it on the Thursday as well. So I, I was sitting solid at four. So you saw it four times within a week, essentially. Mm-hmm. All right. I saw it uh, Thursday at 10.30 p.m., then Friday at 10.30 a.m., 12 hours later. <laughs> uh, then I saw it the Tuesday after Christmas, the 27th, and then I just saw it again this past Friday. Nice. So kind of spaced out a bit more than I was. Yeah, and I, I might wind up seeing it one more time in the theater. Maybe. I, I'm, I'm, yeah, so I saw The Greatest Showman at the weekend, and I kept seeing posters for it still being in theaters, and I was like, I could do another round. I could go for another sit-through. I, I have a friend who is binging all the Star Wars movies for the first time right now, and so I told him that if, if he finished while The Last Jedi was still in theaters, I would go see it with him. So that will be the last one I see, if I see it. Nice. So where do you want to start with this? Because I feel like there's going to be a lot that we can we can dive into. Because um, we were waiting on this movie for like two years, <laughs> yes. at least. Two years, um, but sort of our whole lives. <laughs> uh, <laughs> honestly, a little bit. <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess the first thing we should talk about is just... You know, obviously these rankings change all the time, but right now, where does this rank for you in the nine Star Wars movies? And we're going to count Rogue One in this. This is not just Saga, okay. but all the Star Wars films. Where do you, where do you write this? So I think, so I'm, I'm notoriously terrible for like quantifying art in this way. Um, even like when we do our, our multiversity end of year lists i kind of remember four things that i read the, that year <laughs> and then kind of make up the rest of the list as i go so i i, I always feel like this uh, changes on a whim but i think 
for me, Star Wars is always key. Like, the original New Hope will pretty much always be sitting at number one for me, I think. But I think Last Jedi is number two. Okay. Maybe. I, I think Last Jedi and Empire might be closely tied with either edging out, depending on how I feel. Um, Force Awakens, Rogue One, Revenge of the Sith, Return of the Jedi, uh, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones. Yeah, I, I, I think... I mean, Attack of the Clones is always going to be bottom. Yes. The same <laughs> is always going to be top. But, uh, I... I, I Safe to say it's top three, either way. Uh, my list is not too different from yours. Uh, number one for me will always be Empire, I think, no matter what, just mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. And number two, I think, will always be A New Hope. Uh, but this is firmly number three. And, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it, it is It is firmly in the number three spot. And I think it's going to take a lot for another Star Wars film to knock it out of there. Although, you know, who knows it might. So, um, Empire... I know. What was that? Real good. What was that? That Han Solo movie might be real good. (laughs) Oh, Alice. Oh, sweet, innocent Alice. Um, (laughs) That is not going to be good. Um, But no, so uh, Empire, A New Hope, The Last Jedi, um, Force Awakens, Return of the Jedi, Rogue One, uh... Revenge of the Sith, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones. Yeah, I I, I think you can you can tell people's list by whether they put uh, Attack of the Clones or Phantom Menace on bottom. It's not even close for me. Like because I feel so like bad. the the people who put Phantom Menace on bottom are the kind of people who like just cannot give up the kind of like initial betrayal. Of Phantom Menace being bad, to ignore how little progress was actually made going into Attack of the Clones. <laughs> yes, yes, that is certainly true. Um, all right, so let's—I I guess <laughs> let's talk about uh, our sort of initial, like you know, what was the first moment in the movie besides the crawl that made you like cry slash gasp slash pump your fist in the air. So I have, I have actually, so I have a funny story that I don't think I've actually shared uh, since it happened because the rest of the movie just like destroyed me emotionally and left me a husk of a human being. <laughs> but uh, I, I went to see it as a double bill in IMAX and it was a 3D IMAX. So um, there was like a 20, 25 minute break between the end of Force Awakens and the start of The Last Jedi. And as the last Jedi kind of starts up and like the Lucasfilm logo comes on, like all of us kind of realize they haven't put this like cinema lights down far enough as they normally do. (laughs) And as Lucasfilm logo comes up, we all put the 3d glasses on and half of the projection isn't working. So you get that weird, like it feels like you're wearing an eye patch because the light isn't passing through one of the lenses correctly. And we all kind of go like, Oh fuck. They've, like started this but the projection isn't calibrated right and so we get to i'm like sitting with the glasses up edge of my seat just reading the crawl fervently and everybody else is like oh well they restart it and we get to i think the moment where poe like takes off to the dreadnought like the sublight drive kicks in and he just flies off and it cuts back to 
um, Adrian Edmondson, of all people, uh, with Hux. And they're, they're like, oh, he's going for the dreadnought. He must be bad. And then it cuts to black. And the lights come back really. And everybody, the person that stares is just like, we're very sorry. We're going to start it again. <laughs> um, so that, w- that was my first kind of like, this is going to be a fun ride. Uh, but the first time I cried in the movie is... I, I, I think this might be the same for you, is when R2-D2 played the message. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, like, I, it was it took me so by with surprise, and it was one of the few times uh, I've actually cried in a movie and, like, sobbed audibly and had to, like, <laughs> cover my mouth from, like, other people, like, ruining other people's viewing experience. Uh, I just want to say, it's funny, our IMAX experiences were very different. So I saw IMAX, uh, my, the first viewing was IMAX as well. And um, it's 10.30 p.m. showing, and I meet my friend Ken at the movies, and we get our popcorn and soda, and we're, we're ready for this movie. And we're standing in line, it's 10.20, and they still haven't opened the theater for us yet. And then it's 10.30, oh. and they still haven't opened the theater for us yet. And it's 10.40, and they still haven't opened the theater yet. And we're like, what is happening? And they said, I guess, that it was taking them longer to clean the theater than they thought. So we get there, we sit down. Uh, like instantly the lights dim, we see the sort of like the IMAX commercial. You know what I'm talking about? That airs before an IMAX movie, like, you know, IMAX, 40s, mm-hmm. whatever. And then it starts. They cut all the trailers because they just wanted it to get us, to get it out, get us out on time. So I wasn't emotionally oh, nice. prepared for it. Though. I said that. I'm like, wait, what? They just like <laughs> threw you in the deep end immediately. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what's happening? Uh, so it was, that was, uh, an intense way to start the film, uh, for me as well. Uh, but yeah, but that, that, that moment with, uh, with, with the video of Leia, you know, really, really, uh, got me emotionally. Um, I want to talk, I guess, I guess we'll just kind of go through the movie sort of more or less chronologically. Um, you know, not going through every scene, but just sort of like the big moments of of the film. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything you want to talk about before Leia in space? Uh, yeah, the fact that the opening, like, and just the entire first like scene until they jump to hyperspace is my not your favorite opening to a Star Wars movie, I think, ever. But my new favorite, like, space battle in a Star Wars scene, which was, like, both titles were held by Revenge of the Sith previously. Like, the entire battle over Coruscant was half of the reason why I still hold up Revenge of the Sith as a real good movie. And this just takes the entire, like, same concept and just blows it out of the water. I was so impressed with the physicality of the space battle in there. I was so good. Uh, that Ryan Johnson knows how to direct a movie. He sure does. The the because there's so many cool moments in that that get like overshadowed by just the rest of the movie. Like the the, the fact that uh, the line uh, "I've got a bad feeling about this" is the first words in the movie, not the first words in the movie, but one of the first words in the movie said by BB-8. Like that was just hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah it's uh, um the comedy between poe and hux is actually really good as well it's amazing how much people hate the comedy in this movie which i do not which understand is insane for a star wars movie yeah like you know you're forgetting that in a new hope han solo 
like affects this like calm voice to try and pretend that everything's fine and then asks the stormtrooper, How are you? <laughs> like, you know, there's yeah, like, there's there's always been the comedy. Same scene. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and Yeah. But yeah, I I, uh, I I that whole scene is amazing. I enjoyed that too. I I, I wanna talk a little bit about about uh the first time that that we see Luke, but I don't know if there's I mean, I, I think that the, the film does a really nice job in sort of parsing out the interesting Luke stuff over the whole film. I don't think the first mm-hmm. interaction with Luke, I mean, I, I think it's purposely a letdown. Like, you know, it, it's, it's been yeah. built up so much and then they, you know, and then Luke throws the lightsaber and doesn't really say anything for a while. And I think that that's really important. But I, I do have to say that the, the, the fir- actually, I, I'm wrong. The first time I got emotional during the movie was not the projection. It was Luke asking, where's Han? Um, yeah. The, the way Mark Hamill delivered that line, I thought was, was quite good. Um, and I want to say a word about Mark Hamill here. And one of the things that I find interesting... Oh, yeah, keep going. Um, I, I think that Mark Hamill has a reputation of, of being a not-so-great actor. You right, bud? And uh, I I don't think that that's unearned in times. I think if if you watch him like on the Flash or in his greatest cinematic role, uh, Cockknocker in Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, you can oh, yeah. you can see why you know he sort of gains the reputation as sort of a, a, a hammy, maybe over the top actor. But I think there was a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance in his performance in this film. Oh, for sure, uh, definitely. And I I think the. Being a hammy actor, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Um, but even going back to his like original uh, uh, role as Luke Skywalker in the the main the original Star Wars trilogy, um, he brings a lot to those movies that I think people kind of overlook, because like based on the strength of a Carrie Fisher kind of like just showing up what people thought women could be in science fiction mm-hmm. uh, and like science fantasy movies and be Harrison Ford's just being Harrison Ford's. But I don't think those movies would work emotionally if Mark Hamill wasn't pulling his weight as much as he does, especially in stuff like, like how well would Dagobah even work without Mark Hamill putting all of his like focus into working with, puppets. Right, right, absolutely. And actually, Frank Oz recently like, took to Twitter to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, like, yeah. it's, he's so good, and this just kind of gives him, like, in the same way that, you know, The Force Awakens was really a canvas for Harrison Ford to say goodbye to Han Solo, this is a canvas for Mark Hamill to say goodbye to Luke Skywalker. And it, for all of us, too, in a way... Yeah, it, it it's so sad that we're not getting the episode nine Carrie Fisher says goodbye to Princess Leia. Yeah. Which is what I think was always the plan. Give each film to one of the three original stars. And uh yeah, unfortunately like it, yeah. unfortunately it just it just worked out that this is the way it, it worked out, you know, and that's that's the way it is. Mm-hmm. Um Kids, uh you briefly mentioned the the Leah in space moment and th- that moment happened and I think both me and my girlfriend broke down crying almost immediately <laughs> uh just on 
the impact of the missiles because we thought they'd. I, I I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, did they actually kill her? Like, I had, have, I had the same thought. Back yeah. Um, and it, like I, I guess it turns out that like that was kind of always the plan. Uh, in order for her to pass the torch uh, as leader of the resistance to Poe Dameron, which makes a lot of sense to me, but it also kind of robs her of the ability to then have a proper farewell to the character next movie, which sucks. I have a few like, ideas no about that, that. But we have we have literally two years to talk about that, so okay. <laughs> we should uh, we should hold off on that. But yeah, no... Um, I want to talk about the Leia in space thing though, because I, I I feel like that is something I've heard the maybe the most criticism of from from uh, yeah. from people. And on one hand, I get it. I do. I just happen to vehemently disagree. I think most of the yeah, problems. I, I think I'm in the same boat here. I think I think most of the problems people have with this movie are. Star Wars being something different than you thought it was. And I think mm-hmm. people just presumed both that Leia could not necessarily use the Force in that way, and also that, like, I think that there's this this weird, um, like, reaction to science fiction that people think that the second human body gets in space, it either freezes or explodes. And that just isn't the case. So... I think I think everything about the scene It's so weird. Right, everything about the scene kind of works as long as you look, you're already watching a movie about laser swords. Like if you can get past that, mm-hmm. I don't see why the Leia thing is all that more difficult to get past. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think cause even going back to the idea that people didn't think uh Leia could use the force in that way. One of the things I find really interesting about the scene and kind of Ryan Johnson's take on it is the idea that I don't think she w- even she was consciously using it in that way. It's an instinct. Like, she's... It's the same way that, you know, the kind of adrenaline rush stories of this mother picks up a car yep. to save her baby kind of thing, where it's just she's in danger and her body's just acting with a will of its own. It just so happened that that will can then pass through the force to bring her back to safety. I also and think I, th- I think it super works. Yeah, yeah. I, I also think that there's there is somewhat of a uh, of a history, especially in the new trilogy, of showing the sort of force grab being, if not the first, one of the first force powers to manifest. Like you yeah. see Ray able to pull a lightsaber across a field and she just found out what the force was like 30 seconds ago. And yeah. and you we see at the end of this movie, you know, there's the slave boy who pulls the uh the broom to him. Like that's yeah. you know, we've seen people use the force in that way without a ton of of training. She's the daughter of the most powerful force user we've ever met. Mm. It's I it, mean, like if there. you can believe that Luke can like just because, like because one of the things I think is really interesting is that she clearly has had the force her entire life in the same way that Luke does, but Luke was so she clearly has to have had the same progression of 
instinctual force use that he did, where even not knowing what the force was, Luke was able to just through his feelings make a one in a million pot shot into the Death Star. As a farm boy with no real training in a, a military fighter, and I think because we see that she's had like emotional connection to the Force, even as far back as Empire Strikes Back, where she finds she like just knows where Luke is based on yeah. her him reaching out to her through the Force. Like it's always been there, but I think just seeing it on the screen is different for people than the way it's been shown before. And somebody told me that if they read it in a novel, they'd have loved it. But seeing it on screen, they mm-hmm. didn't like it. And, I, and again, I understand it. I don't agree, but I understand. Yeah, because it's wild. Because like we had entire decades of novel where Leia was a Jedi Knight with a lightsaber. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. that was just a thing that people were fine with. But as soon as Carrie Fisher uses the actual force on the screen, people go mental about it. It's strange to me it is it's really weird um all right so let's um i guess well let's take a few minutes to talk about the um the well do, do you want to talk about luke first or do you want to talk about poe first uh let's go with poe i feel like we're gonna have a lot to say about luke that's so true that's true you know um, uh right. back end this with him yeah so uh so poe in this movie, gets knocked down the furthest. And, mm-hmm. you know, this movie, as you said, is a lot about Leia giving the power of the Resistance over to Poe. And I think, you know, we mm-hmm. have to see him stumble and fall a little bit to get there. I read a really interesting critique of the movie. And, and I'm not saying I agree with it, but again, I can understand it. Somebody said that their least favorite part of the movie is how for the entire movie, two of the main characters, Poe and Leia, are engaged in just a very slow race through space. Like, plot-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're not wrong. And they're they're also not wrong, but my, my counter to that, I, I guess if you could call it a counter to that, is so were Han, Leia, Chewie, then C-3PO, and Empire... Right. Like, there's a good chunk of Empire that's just them being chased by a Star Destroyer. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah. Like, like I feel like that was what it was hearkening to, like, in a thematic sense, where you have them in the dire straits locked in the sights of a much larger Imperial ship or First Order ship, and it is a race and to get them to safety... And, you know, an empire is the ingenuity of just turning off the ship until they dump out the garbage and racing to uh, the Bespin system. And in The Last Jedi, it is the last-ditch attempt with the transports to get them to create, which just happens to be messed up because I think one of the themes of the movie that is kind of overlooked is the, like, a critique of masculine communication Mm-hmm. And on Poe's part, where he wants to know everything, but also he won't tell anyone his plans. Yeah. Like he he wa- immediately he wants to know what Holdo is doing, and doesn't get let on it because he's just the captain at this point. Like she has a legitimate wait, like reason for not telling him 
her entire plan, which hinges on the safety of the the resistance, and like anyone else would just follow that order. But he goes, but no, I'm self-important because Leia liked me a lot and ruins Hollow's entire plan by sending uh letting Rose and Finn go off and do whatever they want. Like he's the one that jeopardizes it. He's the one that causes her to have to uh stay on the ship. Yeah, essentially. Although like, it, it's weird when when you, when you think about it, uh one of the aspects of the film that maybe I'm not such a fan of is I agree with everything you just said and I agree with all that and yet they still kind of make Poe the hero because in a lot of ways Poe sending Finn and Rose out is what causes the um, Snoke's ship to be destroyed eventually because of all of the various you know machinations that happen there and I wish there were more consequences for Poe's character, but I also recognize that, you know, we have limited time in this already very long film with, you know, lots it's and a lots long of long movie and lots of characters to get to. And that ultimately isn't that important to the overall story. Yeah. Um, I think one of the, cause I, I've also heard a lot of people complain or, or at least kind of give their critiques of the Canto Bite stuff. Mm-hmm. And like, it's like, basically the entire subplot with uh, Rose and Finn and what that eventually leads to, which is plot-wise not a whole lot. Like, it basically just leads them to... It's like a journey back in on itself that leads them to a series of failures (laughs) that puts the entire resistance at risk because of them letting someone who told them he was untrustworthy and on major secrets that he barters his safety with and gets the resistance almost destroyed. And I, I kind of get why people don't like that. But again, I disagree with them because I feel like people aren't used to a Star Wars movie where the big mission that he heroes go on doesn't work out a-okay. Yeah, I, my one and only critique of the Canto Bite stuff is, to me, that is the only time in the entire movie that Ryan Johnson doesn't capital G go for it. Like, it's very traditional casino-type footage. You know, it's fun and all that, but it could have been really bonkers. And I think that Ryan Johnson is so great at taking everything and doing it in an interesting and unusual and unforeseen way. And that scene just kind of felt what you'd expect it would feel like. Yeah, I feel that. I feel like uh, one of the things, excuse me, that uh, really marks it out is the character work that he implies there. Mm -hmm. Like, my favorite line, I think, in the entire movie is Rosie's, I want to stick my fist through this whole lousy, beautiful town. Mm -hmm. Like, something going brick back into Star Wars and the best way, it's so pulpy and great, but yeah, I feel like a, a lot of it comes down to the time constraints. Like, I, I the opening shot is kind of front-loaded, like Canto Bites whole, like the pan-through, which I feel like would have been more effective had we not seen it 
basically done in Force Awakens, but with the castle. Right. Like, it feels very similar in a way that it, it does feel like Ryan Johnson's take on a, a cantina scene. Right. I should say. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I liked it. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like it's more... Like the the going for it part kind of more comes with the the chase through the streets, right? Than anything else, right? Which is still just a chase. Yes. Um, now I don't I I can't believe how many people, and I'm not trying to sound arrogant when I say this. How many people misunderstand the Poe? I mean, sorry, the 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 Finn Rose storyline. Like I I have found that right. to be a, a yeah. You hear me? Yeah. I'm oh, yeah. sorry. Sorry. You you cut out for a second there. Um. No. Uh. People are saying like I don't understand it. I don't, it was pointless. And to me, if there's a critique of that, to me, it's that Rose and DJ and Canto Bite all kind of exist for Finn to decide he's actually a rebel. And that yeah. I could I could see a a valid critique of that. You know, they're all just serving his character arc. But I think that his character arc is really important, you know? That that line at the end of the film when Phasma says, you've always been scum, and he says, yeah, rebel scum, like, that's that's really important for that character. That's that's maybe the most important line that character's uttered in two films. You know? It, it, oh, it, definitely. It gives him a, a level of agency and a purpose and a, a, a sense of self... Uh, of self-reflection that he's never really had before. And I think that's super important. And if you don't see that as part of the storyline, then I don't know what you were looking at for that storyline. Yeah. Like, one of the things that I find really interesting about Finn's character is a line that I think showed up in the trailer for The Last Jedi, but didn't make it into the final cut, where he talks about how, like, he was born to fight, but he's never had something to fight for. Right. Like, he is a character marked by like running away from causes mm -hmm. you know like he was a stormtrooper and he deserts and then he's a fake resistance fighter and he runs away as soon as the first order destroys the republic because he's just like well screw this i'm like i'm not gonna go back to them and it's only like his friendship with ray that he actually believes in you know even by the end of the force awakens he doesn't kind of buy into resistance he's literally just there because he is and i think that's one of the interesting things where last jedi picks up is that as soon as finn realizes that if ray comes back she's in danger of falling into snoke's hand he immediately bails like he cares more about ray's safety than whatever is happening on the ship including poe dameron who's basically his other best friend his bae and yeah yeah, pretty much. Like, I'm only mildly salty that they didn't actually <laughs> further romance between them, but yeah. Um, like, his whole journey through the film, meeting Rose, who is him but with a cause, right. and meeting DJ, who is him in ten years if he doesn't pick a side, like, is all about getting him to that point where he does become rebel scum. And I think it super works because the entire journey is more about character than the plot of what's happening. And I feel like people aren't used to that in a Star Wars movie. 
yeah. where things happen because the story says they have to happen and characters just kind of grow along the way. Whereas this is things happen because the character needs to go on this journey. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think that the, the, the DJ character is, is probably somebody we're never going to see again in a film. I think it was probably a one and done character and that's okay. Yeah. I, I would be surprised if he shows up in episode nine. Um, I, I happen to really like the character. I like Benicio del Toro. I, I I thought it was same. I was uh. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say that uh, Benicio del Toro's stutter took me by surprise the first time I see it. I wasn't sure how to feel about that, but mm-hmm. like it grew on me in subsequent viewings. As somebody who was a very bad stutterer as a child, I always enjoy seeing stuttering portrayed on screen. So uh, yeah, so I, I was cool with that. But no, I I think that um. I think the character was very important for Finn, and I think that we're going to see Finn. Finn is the only character that I think we don't have a real sense of what their role in Episode Nine is going to be. Like, Rey is going to obviously be a Jedi and possibly restart the Jedi Order. Poe is going yeah. to be the, the leader of the Resistance. We know mm-hmm. that Finn is going to be part of the Resistance, but we don't know sort of what that's going to look like just yet. Yeah. I think they're probably, like, if I'm J.J. Abrams, like, looking at the la- the script for The Last Jedi, like, uh, and starting to develop Episode Nine, I would definitely be developing, like, Rose and Finn as a duo, and their role inside the Resistance, and a way that kind of Han and Leia were kind of, like, the embodiment of the Rebel Alliance in the original trilogy, while Luke is off doing his Jedi shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it's gonna be interesting because a lot of it comes down to like we kind of we we pro- I feel like we probably know where the the conflict between Rey and Kylo is gonna go in Episode Nine, but where the conflict between the Resistance and the First Order goes is something that's really interesting me. Going into episode nine. Yeah, I agree. Uh, let's let's briefly talk about Snoke. Because okay. uh, one of the other critiques I've seen of The Last Jedi is that we got so little Snoke. Uh, to which I say, kind of who cares. Um, also, we got way more Snoke in this movie than we ever did of the Emperor in all three movies. Well, that that's my trilogy. point. So, it's, so you know, I, I work with teenagers for my day job, and, and one of the kids I work with is a huge Star Wars fan, and this was his big critique. And I said to him, like, you have to realize something. When I saw the original Star Wars trilogy, I didn't know the Emperor had a name. Right? They never yeah. say Palpatine in those movies. Uh, I... All I knew about him was that he was the emperor. He was the leader of the empire and he was evil. And that yeah. was it. And that was enough because the movie isn't about the empire. It isn't about the emperor. It was about, you know, he, he is a pawn in the Luke Vader relationship. And so for Snoke, I feel like we got a fair amount of Snoke. Am I kind of interested to see where Snoke came from? I'll read that novel. Sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll read that. You know, but that's that's about it for me. Like one one of the things that interests me about like going like revisiting the the original trilogy, and like obviously I didn't have the context of like watching a New Hope with no knowledge of what the other Star Wars movies right. would be. Right, same here. Um, 
but that kind of like if you analyze it like there's always a man behind the curtain in terms of vader as a villain in movie one it's tarkin in movie two it's the emperor and then in movie three it's emperor but in a physical presence and like if you watch the three films from vader's perspective as i think lucas wants you to do in the context of six star wars movies with the prequel trilogy it's a series about Anakin Skywalker being pulled from one side to the other, and the Emperor exists just to be an avatar of the dark side of the Force, in the same way that Luke in Return of the Jedi exists to be an avatar of the light side of the Force, pulling Vader back. And if you look at these two films of the sequel trilogy from Ben's perspective, you see that Rey is, like, in the first movie it's kind of Rey and Han, and in this movie it's Rey and Luke, as the avatars of the light side pulling him back to where he came from and Snoke just exists to be the temptation of the dark sides. Like right. he doesn't need to be anything more complicated than that. And you know, the reason I am sort of glad that this happened in this film, uh, besides that amazing scene, I mean, that scene is good. It's goddamn, so it, good. It's so good. But aside from that, I feel like this is what, Ryan Johnson really is taking his own script to heart in a lot of ways. You know, uh, this is not going to go the way you think it's going to go and kill the past if you have yeah. to. Like, you know, the idea that Kylo, you know, and look, I love The Force Awakens, but especially after seeing The Last Jedi, The Last Jedi to me pays a ton of homage to Empire without hitting the same beats as Empire. And I feel like, yeah. you know, Force Awakens really does hit a lot of the same beats as A New Hope, and I don't see that as a criticism, but I think it's just it's a, it's a fact. And yeah, no, it, it's like it's a fact of the text of the Force Awakens. Yes, um, but and I feel like you know, in so many ways, Snoke is to the Emperor as uh, Kylo Ren is to Darth Vader, except that we got the the end of Return of the Jedi in the middle of The Empire Strikes Back, you know. And I, yeah. I I like the idea that there's nobody pulling his strings anymore. That he is his own man and is going to make his own mistakes and fail and successes on his own. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's great. One, and it's one of the things that always uh, intrigues me about the, especially just an empire, but in taking empire in context with the prequel trilogy and now especially the the Marvel Darth Vader series. Uh -huh. Is that in Empire? One of the the my favorite scenes is when like the Emperor just shows up in a hologram to say, "Hey, by the way, did you know that the guy that blew up the Death Star is your kids?" Mm -hmm. And you get this moment where Vader, I think his actual line is, "How is this possible?" And on first reading, it becomes like, "Holy shit, I have a kid now! What?" And you're making me go like steal him and bring him to the dark side, which is kind of that revelation kind of gets moved further and further forward with the trilogy in the comic series, where now it feels like he's bullshitting the Emperor. He's like, what? I didn't know I had a kid. I haven't <laughs> been hunting him with Boba Fett for 20 issues. Right. Um, but my favourite thing about that is that he's like, he says to the Emperor, he will join us, die. And then one of the first things he says to Luke after revealing the truth to him is like, hey, do you want to team up and go kill the Emperor so that we can rule? <laughs> yep. Like, he's um, he's so ready to just, like, ditch the Emperor on, like, multiple publications throughout the original trilogy and just, like, like 
join me and we'll rule together as father and son kind of thing. And what's interesting to me about the, the Snoke revelation is that it feels like Ryan Johnson took that moment and be like, what happens if Kylo Ren just murders Snoke and takes control of the First Order? Like, where does that put you for movie three? And it's really fucking interesting to, like, have the rug pulled out from under you like that. It's funny. When I saw The Force Awakens, I, I was, you know, that scene right before Kylo Ren kills his father, I... I in my mind the idea was like oh well what if he does turn here what if this movie ends with him joining the resistance and I was like yeah. I, then I have no idea what episode eight looks like and then when when he kills Snoke and he and and Ray are fighting back to back I was like wow what is episode nine gonna look like like it, twice now Kylo Ren has killed somebody mm-hmm. that is that that has really changed the tone of the film um. Yeah, because the film really plays fast and loose with the idea that Ben might turn, and it's literally not until the moment that he's he's just like the supreme leader is dead. Long live the supreme leader! That you kind of get this feeling like, no, he doesn't care about coming back to the light side. Like two movies about how he could be brought to the light side, and at every turn he's given. Every opportunity is he he is given to resume his life. He's like, no, but I need more, and that's the purest like distillation of what the dark side does to someone that I've I think I've, we've ever seen in this entire saga. I, I agree with that. There's so many moments that he like Ben could come back, and the especially the the elevator like I I, I kind of I'm not super into the. The almost romantic undertones of his connection to Ray, just cause, but the the elevator ride where, which is very reminiscent of the elevator ride in Return of the Jedi. Yeah, we should have seen it coming. Is <laughs> a perfect moment. Oh yeah, is is could turn. He could come back to the light. He could be the person that Ray wants him to be. But this movie is about letting Ray down and realizing that she needs to be the hero she wants everyone else to be. Yeah. I, I also think um, what's really interesting is that in the movie, we obviously see Kylo Ren decide that he is Kylo Ren. He is not Ben Solo. He makes that decision very, very clearly. But what's fascinating to me yeah. is that Ryan Johnson is such a skilled filmmaker that in the same film that we see him decide for sure he is Kylo Ren, he is he is eschewing his Jedi training, all of that, is also the movie when we have the most sympathy for him. That scene, yeah. I've seen it described as, as the, the Rashomon scene, which is which is brilliant. We see it the three different ways, oh, the yeah. conversation, you know. Um, like, you really feel for Ben in every one of those situations. You really... Mm-hmm. You understand why, why you know he was already down the path to the dark side, but you understand why Luke letting him down was such a big deal. Yeah, like one of the things that I've always loved about Star Wars, and pretty much the same vein as all genre fiction, is it's almost like Space Daddy issues the movie series. Everyone has some kind of daddy issue. Oh yeah, and for Ben, what's all always been fascinating but like 
kind of has fascinated with him, fascinated me with him. We came out is looking at the successive like disappointments he has in father figures. Like one of the things I think really owns about the sequel trilogy is how it doesn't shy away from the fact that like yeah han solo would be a crappy dad oh yeah he'd be the worst like he bails out every time the moment gets tough and even in the aftermath trilogy where you can see he is trying like there's there's no way in my mind that he would ever like live up to the dad han solo that we got in the novels that kind of like perfect stops being a scoundrel kind of cares for his kids kind of thing right even though one of his kids 100% turned to the dark side in that the expanded universe. Um, but you have, you know, Han Solo kind of not being the dad Kylo need, uh, Ben needed him to be, being shipped off as a kid to go learn with Uncle Luke, who again lets him down, and then is being courted by Snoke, who has really, like, not just, like, is borderline, like, straight-up abusive to kylo throughout this entire movie like it is a real like hard edge this is a fucked up abusive relationship between those two it's yeah. not like because like there's always kind of a wonky power dynamic between the emperor and vader where knows that he has vader on a leash but will pretend that they're equals when he's talking to them like he keeps calling him his friend and like hey, buddy, we're going to take over the universe. Whereas Snoke is very much like, no, you're like a tool. You're like, you, you, I care nothing for you other than what you can give me. And I think that's what is the catalyst for him killing Snoke more than like anything else is the feeling of not just killing Snoke and turning to the light side, but killing Snoke and being able to be in a position of power for the first time where he gets to decide what his fate is. And that's really interesting to me and creating a villain whose entire arc is attempted self-fulfilling destiny. Yeah, and I, I would say the other part of, of Kylo Ren that I really appreciated this time is... And every time I've watched the movie, I've I've picked up new little nuances to his performance. But, you know, as... As Kylo Ren gets more and more complex, he gets more and more full of doubt. And at the end of this film, he is as resolute in his beliefs as he's ever been. And he's also the most maniacal. And I think that there's this desire for all of us to sort of romanticize the dark side as being cool. Like, you know, there's a reason that Darth Vader is, is was such a beloved character even before he redeems himself at the end of Jedi. Because there's mm-hmm. just this like sort of cool iconography and there's, you know, the red lightsaber looks cool and all that. But I think that this film, more than almost any other, shows that the dark side is, while it's alluring, it's also really dangerous. And it's also yeah. really bad. You know, it is, it, it is not two sides of the same coin. That the, the dark side truly is evil in, in a way. Yeah. Like one of the things that I love about, the Dark Empire comics, uh, that like were some of the earliest EU comics to like actually bridge out the gap after kind of uh Return of the Jedi, and like they get like real bad by the end of them. That's the the one where like oh 
by the way, did you know that the Emperor just clones himself because right. yeah. his mortal coil is being forever drained by the power of the dark side? It's super goofy. But one of the, the themes is the it explores the dark side almost like alcoholism. Like the, the Skywalkers are almost predispositioned to be tainted by the dark side. Right. And Luke's journey is having to confront the same like danger within himself that his father faced and failed and trying to succeed in that phase, knowing that, you know, Vader eventually redeemed himself. And that's kind of what's touched on here. Like the That the strong Skywalker blood. Yeah, the the dark side isn't just some evil mystic force. It's selfishness. It's acting out of your own self interest to further your own position of power. And at every turn that's what Ben wants. And it kind of harkens back to how, you know, as much as I've seen people criticize the the fact that, you know, Anakin's downfall in Revenge of the Sith is how much he loves Padme, that works for me because it puts him in a state of vulnerability that lets him be manipulated by Palpatine. Mm -hmm. And Ben's need to be his own person, not just tied to his own grandfather or to his parents or to his uncle or whatever and what they want him to be was put him in a position of vulnerability that was manipulated by Snoke. Like, it's sort of like poetry, you know? It rhymes, <laughs> to quote the man himself. Yep. Um, this is a real good movie. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, in the interest of time, let's do a quick hit on uh, Rose. How do you feel about Rose? Yes. Uh, Rose is one of my new favorite characters, and I love her, and I cannot wait to see more of her in Episode Nine. Have you read the Rose I'm, novel yet? I haven't, no, but Kelly Marie, Kelly Marie Tran is a delight, and I, I really want to get my hands on it. Yeah, me too. I'm excited to see that character do more. I, I think, you know, uh, people are expecting... I, I don't know what people are expecting, but I, I, I think maybe it's a testament to J.J. Abrams that by the end of... The Force Awakens, we had a, we had really great moments and a really deep understanding of all of the three new characters. And I, you know, but this is not that film. And you could never have given Rose as much time as you gave Finn or Rey in, uh, yeah. in The Force Awakens. I, I think her character is, is great for any number of reasons. I love seeing a non-white male as one of the, as one of the heroes in the film. I love definitely see and go ahead. No, sorry, keep going. I'll I'll I'll, I'll say afterwards. Okay, and I love seeing a character whose motivation is not. I mean, yes, at, at the end of the film, we get a little bit of romance with her and and, and uh, Finn, but her motivations are never romantic. And I think so many times in, in yeah. especially in sci-fi films, women just become the like the, the romance card in the middle of it. Uh, so she doesn't get that. I love the sort of, uh, I love the casting of her, how she is, she is just, again, like, if this was, if this movie was made in the 90s, they would have cast, like, Angelina Jolie in that role. You know, somebody, oh, yeah. somebody who was, like, overtly sexual with everything. And there's none of that at all. She's just this really refreshing character. And, uh, you know, I, I have a, I have a thing for sibling stories. I love sibling stories. And Star Wars, at its heart, is a sibling story. So seeing her devotion to her sister is 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 a thing I really like. 
overall, I just I I really enjoy the character. I have no problem with the character. Yeah, I I think she's amazing. And I think she's exactly what this movie needed because the entire resistance storyline is like literally built around keeping the power of hope alive, even in the darkest time. Like, uh, as I said, as The Force Awakens came out, like, it had one of the most important lines of all Star Wars, which is like, as long as there's light, we've got a chance. Mm -hmm. When they're like flying over Starkiller Base and the sun's being drained, and Poe's like, as long as there's light, we've still got a chance. And I think uh, Rose has the new one, which is like, we don't win by killing what we hate but by saving what we love. Yep. Like, her entire arc is built around keeping the hope of the Resistance alive, even in the darkest times. And it's even furthered in the uh, scene with uh, Holdo and Poe, where they quote Leia, like, uh, hope is like the sun. If you you only believe believe it, it, yeah. yeah. How we get through the night. Like, that's what this movie's about. And she is the character that Finn needed to progress and like I know we said that it does kind of suck that she exists to further his storyline but I feel like it does it in a really organic way if you know what I mean like she still feels like her own character that goes on her own journey to go from this like lowly mechanic to one of the heroes of the resistance and shows that heroes of the resistance can come from anywhere not just who they're related to, mm-hmm. which is also Ray's storyline. Yes. And how Ryan kind of ties those together is something that I, I, I'm really impressed with. Yeah. Um, do you have more to say about Kylo Ren? Uh, no, because I want to avoid talking about how dumb the like shirtless meme is. <laughs> uh, Look, the movie itself acknowledges how uncomfortable that scene is. <laughs> yeah, like, because it's actually, like, the way they have talked about it since the movie is released is it actually makes a lot of sense in camera, where, because, like, they, they've clearly thought, like, the, the idea between their force connection was they wanted to do it super low-tech, and it's literally just eyelines and, like, the cooler shove effect. It's literally just, like, shot, reverse shot to show that they're connected Mm-hmm. And he's shirtless for her to react to something visually, right? But it's been taken way beyond that, and in a way that actually makes me kind of uncomfortable, uh, and kind of overshadows what that scene is actually trying to do, which I think is like the internet in and of itself. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, all right, so then I I, I want to talk very briefly. The character deserves more than this, but the time's ticking here. I, I, I want to talk about yeah. Holdo. Oh, yes. Uh, boy, it was a good year for Laura Dern and Colored Hair. <laughs> yes, yes, it like, was. Holy crap, she is so good in this movie. And oh, yeah, I, I, I've talked to people and every time I bring her up, there's someone that's just like, well, why didn't they just put a droid on the ship? And I'm like, because drama Exactly. <laughs> like, because it's a movie and logic, and like drama supersedes logic in most cases. And her entire arc of showing Poe what it means to be an actual leader, like, just works for me. Absolutely. I I think that Laura Dern is is wonderful. 
I think that she played every part of that character perfectly. She's understated when she needs to be. There are a couple of moments where she really kind of uh, lets loose, and those are the moments that, that again, feel organic for that character to let loose during. Um, mm-hmm. I can't believe that theaters had to hang up signs explaining the 10 seconds of silence when she oh my drives God, I- the, <laughs> the ship through hyperspace. I, I know people like make fun of like oh Americans are dumb and whatnot, but as soon as I saw that, I was like, this cannot be real. Like American moviegoers cannot seriously have this level of lack of comprehension of movies. I can't imagine it being true. I know it is true. Oh my like, god! I thought it was very clear what was happening. <laughs> yeah, it's one hundred percent set up in camera, and it's like because. I don't know how you see that movie and that moment happens and you're not too busy being taken aback by seeing something you've literally never seen before right. to care about the fact that there's no sound. And it only lasts 10 seconds. Like, so I can't imagine... I, in my mind, someone is sitting there, right? And uh, one, two... I have to go tell a manager! And is managed to just run out of the theater in the in the last last 8 seconds like wouldn't you have mm-hmm. just sat there and and then it's very clear afterwards that the sound comes back yeah. I, just, I don't get it cuz one of the things that actually yeah one of the things that happened to me on my fourth viewing of a of a movie is one of the speakers in the cinema was actually super wonky and it only came up like a couple of times but whenever there was a sound like from like off screen to the right it would either play really quiet or wouldn't play at all. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know there's uh, the the scene where Ray and Kylo are like in the cabin and it's like when they actually like physically touch through the Force. Yes. Um, he has a line during that that didn't play, and the person I was with was just like, "Wait, what's happening?" I was like, "Wait, shit! He he was supposed to say something there." And then afterwards, I was like, "Hey, by the way, like there was a legit audio failure." <laughs> but like, I don't know how people watch that scene and be like, "Hang on a minute, there should be sound in space." It's yeah. it's wild. But that that scene is that that is Ryan Johnson capital G going for it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. There's a number of those scenes in the movie, but that's maybe the most clear one. Oh yeah. Uh, just so great. Uh, but yeah, Holdo. Fantastic. Again, can't wait to read the whole the novel eventually. It'll be about uh, the, the battle. Leia, uh, Leia, Princess of Alderaan, I think, touches on her like childhood with Leia. I haven't read it yet, but I've seen people talking about yeah, that. I, I've heard the same thing, but I can't... There, there's Specifically, there's a battle that Poe mentions where he's like, that's Valsam mm-hmm. and Holdo, Holdo of the Battle of blah, blah, blah. I feel like that will be a novel within two years. Oh, probably, yeah. You know, so I look forward to that. Um... All right, let's. Uh, I'm trying to go through other characters here. We talked about DJ. Uh, I, I mean, I think the main two are Ray and Luke that we well, haven't yeah, touched on. I'm, I'm trying to see if there's anyone else before that. I guess Hux a little bit just reveals himself to uh, be just a total stooge. Yeah, and I love that. And I feel like people were ex- like, because he didn't really have a whole lot to do in Force Awakens other than give a really good speech kind of halfway through but he always kind of felt like he was subservient to Ren even when he should be in charge. Yeah and that is something that's actually 
made very clear in the Phasma novel, too. Right. Um, the Hux family plays a large role in the Phasma novel. Um, I guess we could touch on Phasma very briefly. Um, oh, yeah, we were... Because, yeah, you had uh, read the Phasma novel. Yeah, I did. I did. And, which, uh, shockingly, I still haven't done yet. Yeah, it's... um. It's not a great novel. It's it has its oh, moments. Okay. Um, it's it's really poorly constructed, which it's it's somewhat right, yeah. it's somewhat course correct. So I'll explain to the, the listener. Um, essentially, the first maybe like hundred hundred twenty pages, each chapter is so the first chapter. There's a character that is on a ship. She's a rebe- she's a resistance uh, spy. And she is kidnapped by a, a a first order person named Captain Cardinal, and um, the book is essentially Cardinal interrogating her for information about Phasma, so that he can dispatch Phasma and uh, sort of take his right place in the first order. And so the first chapter is him interrogating her, and the second chapter is then the story that she's telling. And it jumps back and forth between the interrogation room and flashbacks to Phasma's past. And uh it just it's a very jarring way to read it. But but ultimately the the issue with, with, with Phasma to me in the in the novel is that Phasma is always the least interesting character in any mm-hmm. scene that she's in in the in the novel. And I think that, you know, part of this is is on the Star Wars marketing machine for putting her on stage alongside the other new characters of The Force Awakens, um, because yeah. we're building up expectation for her that probably isn't necessary. I also wish there was somehow we didn't know she was still alive at the end of... Uh, you know, I wish there wasn't a book in the comic series so that her reveal at the end, in, in, in Act 3 of The Last Jedi would have felt momentous if we didn't know it was there. Yeah, it feels like that was maybe the plan, and then they started developing that because like it's a great moment because I, I don't know about you, but like I didn't notice her absence until she showed up. Right. Same. Yeah. Like she shows up and I was like, Oh shit. Yeah. We haven't seen Phasma up to this point because there's been fucking so much else going on in this movie. <laughs> right. That I, I just, I didn't like, not even that I didn't care, but like, I didn't notice that she wasn't there. Um, and it's a great return, and she does exactly what she needs to do, which is be the final hurdle in Finn's journey to admitting that he is part of the Rebels. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I wish there was more there, just because I think it's, you know... I mean, she <laughs> it's so cliche, but she is totally the new Boba Fett. You know, um... Oh, yeah. Cool iconography, you know, uh fun to dream on, but ultimately an an unimportant character. Yeah, like, because the the way that she just kind of exists in Force Awakens is that she's just a more important stormtrooper. Like, they they needed someone for Finn to kind of answer to in a superior offer kind of way, and a way of making that trooper seem more important than, I guess, just giving them a red pauldron or however else he would have done it. Like, right. given that character a cool design makes them stand out, and then having them be called back to in the third act as, again, kind of the final obstacle, and, like, Finn proving himself that he's not 
a turncoat that he's actually doing this for something. Like, w- the way she exists on paper works, but because she had a super cool design in the marketing and the way that they kept kind of throwing toys at her and then throwing kind of like marketing stuff at her, people were expecting her to be way more than she was, which is disappointing, obviously. But uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like it's hard to hold that against the character, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I do feel a little bit bad for Gwendolyn Christie because I feel like people, expe- yeah, I, I, you know, people expected more yeah. from from her, and she wasn't able to give it to him. And that's not her fault. Hmm. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they find some way of bringing her back for episode nine. I, I don't know if they should, but I feel like it's kind of purposely open-ended where she could still come back from that. Yes. And I just want to say, you know, there were a number of films that Ryan Johnson clearly uh, was paying homage to at various points in The Last Jedi. My favorite one was how uh, Finn essentially gets her by being Marty McFly in Back to the Future 2. And like landing on the DeLorean. Holy shit! <laughs> right? You're totally right, and I hadn't even. Oh my god, that's so good. Yeah. So you know, as as a huge Back to the Future fan, my favorite film of all time. It's uh, you know, I really, I really enjoyed that. Um. So let's get oh, to the let's, let's get to the big two here. Um, let's talk about Ray first because I, I think both of us are going to have more to say about Luke than Ray. Just because of the nature of how Luke's story ends. Sorry, what was that? That's all right. I, I said let's start with Ray because I think we're both going to have more to say about Luke just by the nature of how Luke's story ends in this film. So let's let's talk about Ray first. Yeah. Uh yeah, that sounds good. Um, I have seen a really interesting uh, breakdown of this film in relation to uh, Joseph Campbell's heroine's journey mm-hmm. and how it relates to basically like a pubescent awakening, like going from child to young adult to woman. Mm-hmm. And the the more it dove into it, the more they're like, I don't want to say creepy, but the more you read into some of the... Uh, the imagery going on in this movie, I was kind of just like, this is kind of weird for a Star Wars movie. Cause, uh, the, 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 the obvious one to pull to is the, the visualization this film has for Ray, like being pulled to the dark sides as a hairy cave with moisture. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's like, it's that kind of thing where like, like the cave is covered in moss it's circular when she sees it there is an explosion of moisture and then when she goes into it later on she's pulled underwater and as she comes out she is like basically discarded the like her hairstyle her clothing style like the the kind of trappings of childhood and the very next scene is her like most intimate moment with ben and it's interesting but it's also very like all women's journey needs to be related to their sexuality. From the and a, a from the subtle filmmaking that brought you the Sarlacc pit comes. Uh... Okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, like I, 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 it works. I think it works on screen. But the the way that person like broke it down is incredibly smart. But it was also like that 
kind of uh, men writing about young women in a way that's a bit too creepy. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Um, uh, my son is playing with a toy that is not a bomb going off in the background. Um, uh, just as everyone knows. Uh, so yeah, I, I thought that, um, you know, I want to talk about the throne room scene where, where Ray and, and Kylo fight together because, uh, it's funny, uh, your friend and mine, Zach Wilkerson, pointed something really interesting out to me where he said that he couldn't believe how people in the theater were just like fucking loving the, uh, the fact that Kylo and Ray were just straight up murdering those guards and like people were, 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 who- I was super into that. Yeah. I, but like, but, I'm that person. And he, he was saying how like he just felt very un sort of Jedi, un, you know, not very good. And he said that to mm-hmm. me after the second time I saw it. And so then, then my subsequent two viewings, I thought about that a lot while watching that scene. And I think that that scene is where Ben is at his best and Ray is at her worst. Like, Ray is guttural yep. screaming, like, banshee crying, I'm gonna destroy people, and Ben is possibly the last hope. And I think that at the end of that, they both kind of go back to where they were before. I mean, they've changed. But Ray goes back to being the compassionate Jedi, and Ben goes back to being the, uh, the, the devious Sith Lord, or whatever, whatever he's calling himself, Knight of Ren, or whatever. Um, mm. and, uh, but I think that that scene shows what both could be if they took the other's path. Yeah. Like, uh, cause you, you watch that, and, and Ben's a very graceful fighter in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, like, because one of the things that's really interesting about because th- this movie is maybe the most Akira Kurosawa I've ever seen a Star Wars movie get. Oh yeah, like, like the film almost name drops Rashomon throughout the film. Like, it's very obviously imagining Rashomon with the the kind of triptych of like Ben's flashback. Yep. But the entire set of Snoke's throne room and the the blocking of that scene and the way it uses like the degradation of flame to burn away the past and like what Snoke represents for both characters and just the the sword play involved and maybe my favorite lightsaber trick of all time where Ray just throws him the lightsaber and he just turns it on and off in a second to yep. just go straight through the guy's head is baller. It's I, every time I see it, people like mark out for that moment yep. more than I think any other. Um, and it's just like it is pure samurai movie in a way that I think is one of the coolest elements to bring to the the kind of sword fighting on display in the Star Wars movies. Um, and yeah, like one of the things that I found interesting about Rey and The Force Awakens is that the the her fight with Kylo Ren, the lightsaber fight, has like two distinct halves, where the first half, she's very much on the defensive. She's a very sloppy fighter. She's just using what she knows of like uh, uh, martial arts to defend herself. 
and then you get that kind of moment of respite. You know, I can show you the ways of the Force. You need a teacher. And as she accepts it and for the first time opens herself up to the Force, when she's on the defensive, it's scary. Like, she completely overpowers Kylo. And the, the kind of... Uh, there's one shot that, like, uh, is, like, in slow motion almost of her, like, like bring the lightsaber down. She's terrifyingly, like, just snarling at him. And it's it feels like pure dark side. One of the things that really interests me about Rey as a character is the way that she doesn't feel pulled to either side. Like, there was all this talk of, like, oh, will Rey turn to the dark side? I'm like, I don't think she was ever really turned to the light side in the way that many Jedi have been. Like, certainly not in the way that, like, Luke was by Obi-Wan and Yoda. Like, she feels firmly sat in the middle and is able to pull on both aspects at will, mm-hmm. which I think is fascinating and amazing character. Yeah, I agree with all that. I agree with all that. You agree too, Ben? Right. <laughs> all right, cool, cool, dude. Um, yeah, you know, I don't have too much more to say about Ray because I feel like so much of, of what I'd say about Ray involves Luke. Um, yeah. So a, a couple of sort of quick hits about Luke before we get into it. I feel bad for Chewbacca in this movie because Luke doesn't give a shit about Chewbacca. <laughs> like, he, oh, yeah, he like... barely reacts when Chewbacca walks in the room. He sees R2-D2, he gets giddy, but Chewbacca, you know, who risked his life for Luke countless times, gets nothing. Yeah, like, they were good buds, because, like, I can't even have, like, the, oh, well, look, Chewbacca more about Han or whatever, because, like, th- the first scene that I remember is the their hug before they leave on Hoth. Yeah. Like... Chewie clearly cares about Luke, and Luke is just so jaded that he's just like, uh, I don't care. Yeah. Um, I want to say that. I, I want to say that uh, I, I do not understand why people on the internet are so mad about Luke milking an animal. He is a farm boy. Yep. It's, it's like, oh, I, like, I kind of get it on the base level of it's kind of funny in an immature way yeah. like it's it's very like lowbrow humor oh haha titties i guess <laughs> but, i think the funniest part about it is his like ah, like when he drinks the milk yeah. that's the funny part about it nothing else about it is funny animals yeah like have milk it, he that whole scene feels like it's like the the whole kind of segment of his like daily life where ray kind of uh follows him about he's showing off to her of just being like, well, I've got shit to do. Like, cause he does the same thing where when he's fishing, he grabs a long pole and like vaults over it. And she's like calling it from, and he turns around with this weird, like evil smirk. He's just like, well, fuck you then. And just yeah. starts fishing. Like he's really just been like, Oh, well, if you're going to follow me around, I'm going to like show off, I guess. Or, or like, be really sarcastic at you but yeah look having an actual scene of Luke living off the land was perfect yeah for me agreed all right let, let's let's get into the important Luke stuff here um do you think Luke would have ever shut himself off from the forest this is a big point of contention 
Uh, I think the way that they set up the fact that he did is something that I buy into. Um, the, I, I feel like the the I, I feel like it's a backwards question. Like, would this character ever do this? Like, well, given the right motivation, yes. And I believe confronting Luke with the the darkness within him. I actually talked about this earlier today on uh, on Twitter. Like, one of Luke's feelings is he always believed in himself, but never in the power of the Force. Like that's why he failed Luke's train, uh, Yoda's training. Like he could never, he always had his mind to the horizon, but could never imagine a world beyond himself mm-hmm. because of his upbringing. And so I feel like, even though as a Jedi he never felt bound by the same dogma as like the Republic Jedi Order did. The more he learned about that, I think the more he tried to um, and tried to kind of shut himself off from the kind of personal dark side instead of in Return of the Jedi, being able to use a bit of both, which is what Rey can do. Because, like, if you remember, the first thing you see Luke do in Return of the Jedi is force choke a Gamorrean guard. And the only other person you'd ever seen do a force choke is Darth Vader. Yep. Like... And he's wearing all black. There's a very high, like, is Luke going to turn to the dark side? He's using, like, the like denoted dark side powers. He, um, he's also super but, cocky in that scene. Like, he, he, he yeah. essentially says to, to, to Han, like, I've thought of everything. I've taken care of everything. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm the best, you know. I'm the legend of Luke Skywalker. Like, and, yeah, like, I, I feel like that was his ability to be, like, oh, well, now I have more control, I can be the legend. And by the end of the movie, he's ready to, like, give up physical conflict. He just throws the lightsaber away yep. and is like, no, I, I'm I'm better than this. I'm a Jedi like my father before me. And in doing so, he kind yeah. of abandons the darkness within him. And in a moment where he's confronted with it, where he, he finds Ben and sees a future in which everything that he's ever built is destroyed by him i feel like what's not it's basically gone unsaid in the movie but what i gain from hamill's performance in that scene is it feels like luke is questioning if obi-wan ever had the chance to kill anakin before he turned to darth vader would he have done it right like that to me is the core of his conflict in that scene and the the just the fleeting thought of it leaves him with so much pain that if he looks at the major conflicts of the galaxy and everything that he's read, the constant can only be the Jedi to him. Like the way he sets out, a Jedi was responsible for the creation of Darth Vader. Like obviously it's countered by and a Jedi saved him. But if he's wracked with so much guilt over the idea that a Jedi would take the life of his own nephew just to save the galaxy, I 100% believe that he'd just completely uh, block himself off. Yeah. And I also think that it helps to make sense of some of the other stuff in the film. Like, you know, one of the things that I think I naively thought was that, like, you know, once... um, after Return of the Jedi, I kind of picture 
Luke having the, this like force ghost entourage behind him at all times, like you know, like oh, yeah. uh, hype men, you know, in in uh, <laughs> you know, just like yeah, Luke, what you doing, boy? You know, just like get getting out, getting there, you know, getting into hijinks together. And so when when you yeah. see Yoda, which we, we haven't talked about Yoda, uh, <laughs> which I literally gasped oh, oh in the God. movie when that, when it happened. Same. Um, it was childlike. Yeah, but but when you you know, Yoda says that he's missed Luke, and it's because Luke shut himself off from the Force, and you, you would think that you know that's why he doesn't know that Han is dead, and that's why yeah. all this stuff has happened. It, 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 I think it might be more of a storytelling necessity than a pure character mm-hmm. moment for me, but it works. Like Ryan Johnson convinces me of it, you know. Um, and I think I think one of the the, the reasons there's backlash to the idea of um Luke shutting himself off of the force and just being so negative towards the idea of the Jedi in this movie is that everything that we've ever really been told about the Jedi is that there are these great legendary warriors that are the peacekeepers and what have you. And one of the things that I think was ineffectively communicated by the prequel trilogy and especially the Clone Wars Stories you're told want them to be, and that's kind of something that the film digs into. Like, yeah, the Jedi did some good, but they also stole and indoctrinated them into ideology that forced them to fight for the galaxy in the same way that the First Order does. There is always bad to every good, and I feel like it makes sense for me the way they set up that. Instead of Luke being able to see the balance, is only brought down by the negativity of the past. Like, I don't know how much time we have to actually get into this, but <laughs> the film has this really at how to view the past. And like, obviously, you mentioned the the kill the past line from Kylo, and I feel like that's the one that's more quoted, but isn't really. Ryan's yeah. position on where the film lies, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like the film kind of sets that up where Kylo's like, yeah, no, kill the past. Like, it doesn't matter what happened before, it only happens now. But it does matter what happens before. And Luke is consumed by the past. Like, he cannot let go to see a brighter future because of what happened in the past. And Ray, as the center point needs to be both. Right. She needs to accept past, but move beyond it. And that's what her eventual admittance to like, her parents didn't matter. They were nobodies. And Luke was a disappointment in the same way that Ben is a disappointment. And she needs to be something better and beyond the both of them. Yeah. Is really powerful. And I think Ray kind of gets overshadowed in the film by those two extremes and trying to be the middle point between the two of them. But she's the only one that's going to get the third movie to really... Like I, I think oh, that yeah. at, this, at this point, Kylo Ren's story is kind of determined, at least in broad strokes, right? Um, yeah. he, he's going to be the villain of the third film. And Luke's story is over for all intents and purposes, so she'll have time for that. Um, before we have to go, and I, I do have about 10 minutes I'll get my daughter from the bus stop, but... Um, 
we have to talk about the, the force projection. Oh yeah, I was super into it, and I think they did a really good job of actually setting up the reveal. Like, if you're smart, you can see it coming a mile away. Yeah, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I told our friend Vince, I was like, you know, I have the perfect Simpsons meme that relates to the to the Last Jedi, and I'm gonna send it to you approximately at what point in the film it's going to take place. But don't look at it till after the movie. And it's from the the monorail, Mars versus the monorail. Are, are you familiar with the Simpsons episode? Yeah. Okay. I haven't uh, seen it in ages, but yeah. <laughs> there's a scene where the scientist and Marge come to Springfield, and they're too late. And the scientist says, "I shouldn't have stopped for that haircut. I'm sorry." And uh, <laughs> when I saw Luke, it's like the first thing I thought of was like, "Where did Luke get the just for men for his beard and uh, yeah, get the haircut?" Like you know. And once you know that, like once you put it all together, you're like, "Oh, this is what's happening." Okay. Um, yeah. There's so many little moments in that film that like lead you to that moment, but Kylo is so because uh, uh, one of the things that the, there's a really good video on the Star Wars YouTube channel that's like Last Jedi secrets revealed, which is massive clickbait, and what it actually is is more a breakdown of the kind of little moments that haven't been kind of explored yet behind the scenes, uh-huh. um, and the idea is that. Kylo Ren is so wrapped with like prideful rage at Luke that he's willing to like just overlook the fact that you know he doesn't really know that the lightsaber exploded, but he knows that Ray has it. So like you can kind of make that leap that he's not going to question the fact that Luke has it. Right. But just seeing Luke is makes him it blinds him so that he can't just be like, well, how did he get here? And like the uh the whole planet is set up so that everyone's footsteps unearth right, the right. red underneath yeah, salt. Except for and Luke's. Not only does Luke not have any footsteps, he doesn't make any sound when his he moves. Mm-hmm. And the snowflakes or like the salt flakes that are basically drifting in the air don't touch his lightsaber but audibly crackle on Kylo's. There's so many layers to that scene that I just love and then because it gives the audience what they want it gives them their badass Luke Skywalker moment where he fights off the villain lets the heroes escape and then pulls back and shows the real man being able to finally fulfill his purpose and bring back the legend and pass away in peace yeah I mean again there's a scene I think it's the first or second time that Ray and Kylo bridge the force and talk to each other, where he says to Ray, you can't be doing this. The effort alone would kill you. And that's like a yeah. nice little hint to how much energy it would take to do that sort of thing. Um, and like, the because the, maybe that wouldn't kill him if he was at the height of his power, but the fact that he'd blocked himself off so much... Like and was like one of the first things he did with the force again. I could yeah. totally believe actually kills him with the exertion. Yeah. Um, and it's such a good because my last point, my last point, I promise, because I know you need to go. <laughs> but the entire point of his conflict with um, Vader in Return of the Jedi is that Vader baits him into this prideful defense of his sister, and he realizes that he will become just as bad as Vader if he takes that past, like where he's looking at his own hand, he's looking at Vader's robotic hand and he throws away the lightsaber. Mm-hmm. And this has the badass 
Luke Skywalker's final moment, and he doesn't swing with his lightsaber at all. Nope. It's entirely defensive. Yep. Uh-huh. It's so well set up based on what the character's past is that I do not understand what people's problems with it are. Yeah. I, I, I do want to say uh, one more thing about about this fight. I, I it, This is the part of the movie that got me the most emotional. I absolutely loved it. I loved the the ending of it, all of that. There were two things that I noticed on subsequent viewings. The first one I'm sure you've noticed and thought about. The second one I'm gonna I'm gonna guess maybe you haven't. Um and I'm excited mm-hmm. to talk about them. Number one, you did see that Ray stole the Jedi texts, right? Yes, one hundred percent. I missed that the first time I saw it. And actually it leads to uh Yoda's line where she has everything she needs. Right, exactly, which is great. I, I don't think she stole them. I think Yoda put them there. Oh, maybe. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, because we've seen that Yoda, but as like either are like she has them. Can can do things, you know? Can can, can yeah. manifest physically. He hits Luke. He brings down lightning, etc. The other thing, though, yeah, I, I love that throughout both of these sequel movies, there is such great foreshadowing for what's going to happen later in the movie. And so mm-hmm. when when Leia is in space, the way she survives is by pulling herself back to the ship. But the last thing she does is she flies through a hologram of Snoke's ship, and then the ship, yeah, and then the Resistance survives by flying through Snoke's ship. That's good. It's like a really little thing, but it's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so. like. I genuinely might break down threes in this movie. Everything is done, set up like goes back to it to emphasize it payoff yep and threes the entire film is like a triptych it's stunningly written and constructed it's oh, i love this movie it's so much hey alice remember when we were so this excited is like number two for me yeah remember when we were so excited about ryan johnson's trilogy before we had seen any of the last jedi how excited are you yeah. for ryan johnson's trilogy now i am not emotionally ready and it's really funny because i feel like there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be super mad at it in the lead up and i'm just being like i don't care money down like i like right now i would pay for a ticket oh yeah absolutely yeah i'm more excited for that than i think i am for episode nine somehow i i don't know if i'm quite there yet just because of the fact that we have no idea what it's gonna be and i'm actually these stories are gonna not quite resolve but come to some sort of resolution and uh i just said the same thing twice but uh, <laughs> not quite end but come to some sort of resolution in uh episode nine yeah. um and can you imagine how colin trevorrow would follow this movie oh, up there's no way there's no way there's no way <laughs> like i know people are gonna be like oh J.J. Abrams again. He's gonna under like throw everything away and like, like I saw someone like fake a episode nine crawl and like the first line are everything was a dream. The yeah. Knights of Ren have built a third Death Star, and I'm yeah. like, that's funny. I bet you it won't be that bad. No, I think that Lucasfilm is so happy with Ryan Johnson that they wouldn't have brought back J.J. Abrams if they didn't get the the commitment that he wouldn't just spend the movie undoing what Ryan Johnson did. Yeah. Not that he would do that. He wouldn't. 
yeah, he, I don't think he wouldn't. And I think people people who are mad that Ryan Johnson like ruined whatever JJ Abrams like quote unquote set up has to remember that he was writing Last Jedi when they were filming Force Awakens. There's no way JJ Abrams didn't see this script before right. Last Jedi started filming, and yeah. wasn't like even if he wasn't happy with it, like Lucasfilm has to have been happy with it. And if he wasn't happy with it, he wouldn't have come back for nine. Yeah. And I don't think there's any way that his, like, a, like he was coming back for Nine only if he gets to, like, reveal that Snoke was actually a clone of Mace Windu. Right. Or whatever people wanted him to be. Yeah. Agreed. Well, this was fun. Last uh, is good. It's very good. Yes. Uh, I do want to, maybe not next month, but we, we should find a time in the next, like, six months. To to hash out what we think episode nine is going to be like, that would be interesting. Yeah. So let's let's try and find some time to do within that. the next six months. We might get a title drop. Oh, I don't think it'll be within six months. Do you? I have no idea. We didn't but, get uh, the last Jedi until a year ago. More. I mean, less. Oh than yeah, you, right? shit. Yeah. True. I I guess it depends on whether. Uh, fucking soul makes its May release date. It's never gonna make its May. They're they're reshooting Which is again. Not gonna. They're reshooting again. I know. They're like, oh god. <laughs> I feel like I feel like next month we're gonna just do an episode that's like catching up in all the Star Wars, just like everything that's happened since uh, uh, this movie dropped. Yeah, I agree. All right, well, uh, I'm Brian. He's an app on I Twitter. Swear, I could have gone for another four hours. Yeah, me, me uh, too. <laughs> Give the folks your yeah, Twitter handle. Let, let the people know. Uh, I am Alice W. Castle on Twitter. Brian is. Brian is an app. Multiversitycomics.com. Uh, may the force be with everybody. May the force be with you. And good night. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show.